Very good. We're going to continue what we've been doing these last Wednesday nights. We've been talking about dominion. And I'm just reminding all of us just to get our minds and our spirits back in the hunt. We started this whole uh, instructional time because there have been such uh, twisting of concepts, uh, even within the media of certain uh, biblical ideas that I just decided if, if we don't take time to unravel and uh, uh, untwist these things, God's people will be confused, and, and that's exactly what the enemy wants. If he, can't, if he can't ultimately win over you, he just spends his time confusing you. And so uh, we've been talking about dominion because this is one of those words that you'll find written up in Time Magazine or Newsweek or you'll listen to it on some cable news network that there's this group of radical Christians who are, you know, on the other side of the track and they're teaching dominionism and they're teaching some form of takeover and theocracy. And like I've always said, as if we would do any worse than with what we already see in our culture. But you need to understand it correctly and not let uh, media Philistines uh, necessarily define all these concepts. So we've been working through dominion and dominionism and what does it mean? And we've been doing this rather methodically. And so I hope that doesn't uh, frustrate you as we've just been walking through this kind of line upon line, order upon order, and we're going to continue to do that tonight. And I entitled our lesson tonight, How Dominion is Released. How Dominion is Released. And I want you to go back to the eighth Psalm, Psalm 8. And I want to read those verses again. I'm just going to keep sowing these into you. And maybe we'll have them memorized by the time we're done. I don't know how many weeks we will be here. But Psalm 8, beginning with verse 3, the psalmist writes, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, he, of course, is speaking to the Lord, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels. And the reason it was translated angels is because it's the word Elohim. It's actually in the plural. Elohim in the plural. Elohim is one of the names for God. And, and I know translators have a difficult time ascribing, as they should, that somehow we would be in God's category. And so many translators use the term angels in order that we would distinguish that we aren't exactly like God. But Elohim means ruler. And uh, what it literally could be translated is that God has created you uh, a little lower than the rulers or the ruling entities, which is why angels comes up here. So, so we've been called to a fairly lofty and exalted place as God's kids. Amen? It says you crowned him with glory and honor in verse 5. Verse 6 is where we've underscored you have made him to have what? Say it again. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. And you have put all things under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. All right. Pretty amazing verses. And we spent time. And again, I'm reviewing very, very fast. We spent time in the book of Genesis. In fact, we'll be going back there. If you want to go ahead and find your way back to the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings to see what God's original intent was. And again, in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God defines what he meant by dominion. And as you'll recall, there were four things related to dominion. You remember these four things. Let's just hit it real quickly. Number one, he said that you were to be fruitful and, 
and be productive. That's what that means. That's a part of dominion is your fruitfulness. If you want to exercise dominion, you've got to be fruitful. If you aren't fruitful, you'll never, you'll never understand dominion. Number two, he said multiply. Multiply means to expand yourself. Multiply. Uh, enlarge yourself. Excel. These are all concepts that would fall under multiply. Then the third thing he said was replenish. In other words, fill up your surroundings. Be indispensable. You know, some of you, and this is a good thing, uh, not in a haughty way or an arrogant way, and, and this is one of the reasons why you have to maintain your humility, but when you become indispensable in your job, it doesn't matter what your title is, you're exercising dominion. They, ca- they can't get rid of you. They got rid of you. They just, I mean, I'm not saying, you know, everybody's dispensable at some level. But you, I think you understand what I mean. You fill up your surroundings. And then lastly, number four, subdue, which I've come to understand, manage and order your success. If you can order your life, if you can manage your life, if you just can put things in order, if you can, if you can show order in a chaotic world, People will gravitate to you (laughs) just to see order because we live in times of anarchy. Now, the question is, and it's tonight's lesson, how is that made manifest and how does that happen? So this is where we're going to pick it up tonight. If if you're open to the book of Genesis, go to Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. And I want to talk about this for just a moment. And I believe I'm going to move through this. If I don't get through it all, I'll see you next Wednesday night. All right. Genesis 3.14. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the account of the fall, what we call the fall of man, or the fall of man and woman, or the fall of humanity. You know the story. Uh, the serpent seduced the woman. She partake of the fruit, gave it to her husband. Uh, a cataclysmic event, event occurred. Sin entered into the picture, and all, all of creation fell at that particular moment. Sin entered into the picture. It wasn't God's intent. It wasn't, it wasn't what he wanted. Um, you know, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, did, did he know it was going to happen? I, I suspect uh, in his mind, as we begin to read other verses, that he knew that man, because of his heart and his volition, could probably be easily swayed another direction. Listen, when I say this, um, I believe this. I believe God wants us to love him, not because we have to, but because we want to. I mean, that's what true love is. To me, true love is, is not because I'm forced to do it but it's when I want or I desire to do it. And, and so however his sovereignty and man's freedom works together, and I think there's always going to be a little mystery in that, um, the, the truth of the matter is that we have the ability to want to. And he wants us to want to. And so therefore, out of all the trees of the garden, in fact, he didn't put much option in the garden. He only put one tree in there. I mean, it's not like there was this you know, orchard that was in there that was beckoning their rebellion the whole time. I mean, there's just one tree in this whole big garden that simply gives them an option. And so they took that option. Sin enters into the picture. This cataclysmic uh, door is opened and sin enters into the picture. And now in Genesis 3.14, God begins to declare some of the things that are going to take place because of this event. So the Lord first says to the serpent, verse 14, because you've done this, You are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15, And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, 
And literally at this point, he's not talking, he's not talking uh, with regards to, uh, you know, just, what's the, what's the scientific word? Where's, is Miss Shaw here tonight? She's not here. Is she here tonight? What's, what, what, what's, what's that called when you're just studying animals? Is that just biology or zoology? All right. Well, it's not just zoology. It's not just your, your you know, it's not just he's declaring y'all are going to be afraid of snakes from now on, even though that's true, isn't it? I'm not real fond of snakes. Of course, the scripture doesn't say it was a snake. It said it was a serpent, but we all tend to think it was a snake. You know me, the only good snake is a dead snake. Yes, Exactly. So there's going to be this enmity that it says, and, and again, not just zoology, but spiritually between you and the woman, meaning, meaning Satan, the devil, and the woman. Uh, and, and I think there's some great illusion there that would come out even with regards to the church, um, that there would be enmity between the church and the enemy. Can you say amen? There sure enough is enmity. I mean, I'm at enmity with him. Uh, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise, bruise your head he shall bruise your head, excuse me, and you shall bruise his heel. And then he says this to the woman. He said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Uh, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Interesting passage. They tell me that's a difficult passage to uh, translate out of the Hebrew. In fact, I think some of your notes even would allude to that depending on what Bible you have. And uh, I suspect it carries the idea that, you know, in the garden, uh, you know, a lot of things were set up in the garden that had to be uh, somewhat reordered after the fall. In the garden, I believe that both man and woman was set up in order to be, uh, uh, you know, co-heirs and co-laborers and probably co-rulers. And, uh, and now that all of this cataclysmic event took place, uh, God says, I'm going to have to put order. Hearts aren't going to work purely as they once did anymore. So he's going to have to institute authority and he begins to tell them, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put your husband uh, over you. And indeed, we know that to be the case. There is a divine order within the home. Um, but then he says in verse 17, then to Adam, he said, because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree uh, of which I have commanded you saying, you shall not eat of it. Now listen to this very closely. He said, cursed is the ground for your sake. Now, what that says is, now understand, these are the declarations that are happening after uh, sin enters into the picture. So, cursed is the ground for your sake. So, what does that mean? If it's cursed after the fall, what was it before the fall? Let's see. All right. So, whatever the ground was before the fall, there was going to be an ease or a blessing to it. But now, after the fall has taken place, it says there's a, there's a cursedness to it. So he's beginning to set up that what you had as a benefit in this pristine environment is now, is now going to be much more difficult. It's not going to function like you once knew it. So he said, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it. Now what that tells me is this, because he'll go on. In fact, let me just go on. All the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field, verse 19, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you shall return. Basically, what God is saying is this, is that now that sin has entered into the picture and the whole world has fallen under this curse and, and, and in order for you to, to function, in order for you and your needs to be met, in order for things to happen, you're going to have to work at it. 
That's what he's saying. Now, I don't know how they were going to do that prior to the fall. Maybe, maybe everything just happened in such a way there would be a divine ease to it. I, I don't know. I'd be speculating. I suspect that was the case. But now, now he was going to have to work at it. And this is the key. God did not take away, I don't believe, the dominion promise. I believe it's always been God's design, desire to this very moment that we exercise dominion in the earth. But we're not going to exercise dominion in the earth like they did in the garden. See, we're not going to get back to the garden. Are you following me? I, I, I mean, we've been too stained. It's too deep. There was an innocence. It was, it was this pristine environment. We're never going to have it exactly like it was in the garden. But nonetheless, that doesn't diminish the fact that there's still a promise of dominion that can exist, uh, that God says can exist uh, in our lives and in the earth. And so God didn't take away the dominion promise, but I do believe he changed how it would be manifest. In other words, just like, you know, they were walking along, they could hear from God. It was easy. I mean, can you imagine? I always read like those first several chapters into chapter three and you see Eve having this conversation with a reptile. Now that would seem fairly odd in today's world. But do you understand that just is like this normal account, this interaction that's taking place, walking in the cool of the garden, visiting with God. I mean, this was normal in the garden. It's not normal now. Or it, I'm, I'm saying it's not like that. It's, it takes a lot more work in order to cultivate relationship. So I believe that the dominion promise is still true, but it changes how it would be manifest. Prior to the fall, there's, this, there's a, a supernatural happening that's very natural. But now it's all natural as we try to access the supernatural. Are you following how it's kind of been inverted? All right. So what it all boils down to is what he says here. He, he said, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, he said, replenish, and subdue. All of these things would have been e with ease supernaturally. But now, in order for this to take place, there would be toil or work associated with it. I'm going to help you here tonight in understanding how dominion works in your life. And how God will work in your life. Put on the screen, would you please, the definition of work. There's two words, at least in the Greek language, uh, that we can understand how God views work. The first word is ergon. Ergon literally means supernatural work. It was the word Jesus used when he said this. He said, the works that I do, you shall do. And greater works than these, because I go to the Father. And what Jesus was referencing there was not that you would go out and do more carpentry than he did. I mean, the context is clear. Whatever supernatural activity he was involved with, he's looking at the disciples and he's saying, you get to do this, and not only this, but you'll get to do even more. In both, I think, quality and quantity. Ergon. But there's another word that creeps up that's translated work as well. And it's the word energia. Now, you should see very quickly that that's where we get probably our English word energy from. And energia means labor or physical effort. And probably those two words, as they're used all through the Bible, are, are words that probably are distinguishing God's supernatural activity of work 
from natural, physical activity that we would consider most natural. In fact, sometimes I think we consider one to be spiritual and one to be sort of unspiritual. I want to suggest to you that both are intensely spiritual. See, the misconception is, is that, that God's at work over here in Aragon. But this is really kind of us in Energia. But truth of the matter is, it is God who is involved in Aragon. But I'm here to tell you that God is very much involved with physical labor, with natural work as well. You see, here's the misconception. The misconception is that both have a spiritual dynamic. Work is the application or the implementation of an anointing, of a gifting, of a talent, or of an ability that God has put inside of you. Let me give you an example. Paul said these words, Ephesians 3.20. He said um, that his prayer is that you would do exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ask or think according to the power that works where? Within you, right? Within you. So within us... There is the capacity to do something that is exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. And it's because he lives in there. It's because the spirit of God is inside of here. And so within all of us, if we, if we, if we uh, affirm that Jesus is Lord, if we affirm that we're filled with his spirit, if we affirm these things, then inside of you tonight, think about this, there is this potential, this supernatural potential that can do things beyond your wildest imagination. But here's the key. How do you translate potential into reality? Work. You've got to do something in order for that to manifest. Now listen, work does not equal a job. People confuse the two. A job provides a paycheck. Work activates dominion. Job gets you a paycheck. Work activates a vision. God never said six days shall you go to a job. Didn't say that. He said six days you shall work. See, we've narrowed work down to a job, and that's not what it's all about at all. Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 36, Jesus sees the greatness of the harvest. He says, the fields, look, the fields are white unto harvest. And what he means by that is he's saying there are people that are just ripe for salvation. There are people who are ripe for the gospel. There are people who are just on the edge of coming into the kingdom. And he sees the multitude. And he's, and he's praying and he wants to activate the heart of God for the harvest. And so he begins to pray. And what does he say? Does he say, he, does he say you know, the harvest is plentiful, but the gifts are few. He doesn't say that, does he? Does he say the harvest is plentiful, but the anointing is lacking? No. He said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers or workers, energy is the verb, he would have switched it into the noun. They're few. They're few. So Jesus then goes on to say, we need to pray. And you know what he said? We don't need to pray for more anointing. We don't need to pray for more gifts. We just need to pray that somebody will put their hand to something so all that potential can be released into the earth for his kingdom. Now, 
I'm just going to suggest this because, you know what, I, I am a full gospel. You know me. I believe that the Holy Spirit's alive and well and doing a work today in the earth. I believe that what God did then, he can do today. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I believe in all of those things. But can I just share this with you? God's problem has never been a lack of power. God's problem has been a lack of implementation, which is simply called work. 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 We like God when he does things dramatic. And I love the dramatic. I hope you like the dramatic. It's really cool when God does something dramatic, isn't it? And praise God when the dramatic happens. But can I just share this with you? God does dramatic things. We give him praise when it happens. But there's a lot of kingdom things that happen when you just step into an activity and lay your hand to something and he begins to let a miracle flow from the work of your hands. That's why I think so many of the parables have to deal with in that time period. They were agricultural uh, in their economy. And that's why he's talking about sowing seed and working in fields. And, and, and he tells the parables, and we may come back to them, about giving uh, giving his servants a minas or talents, giving them money, and that they have to invest these things. And all of this, he comes back and he relates to kingdom purpose. It's because when we begin to lay our hands to certain things, when we begin to implement by, by work, and I'm not talking about your job, I'm talking about energia. I'm talking about physically getting involved in something. It is there that God begins to manifest miracles. You see, our problem in the current church is we want positions. We, we are job keepers instead of dream activators. We want, we want something to do or some position to have, not for kingdom purpose, but because it makes us feel good, I think. But ultimately, what God says is this, is if you'll put your hand to something, think about it. Who signs up for the Joseph route? Where your brothers sell you into slavery, you're thrown into a pit, sold into slavery. You work in Potiphar's house, you get falsely accused, you're thrown into prison, and there you serve. You serve in prison. What are you doing in prison? Is, is, is Joseph just doing hard time? And got his calendar on his prison wall, checking off how many days he's going to live in prison. Or does the Bible say, even when he's in prison, he is what? And through that, working as God works through him, because nobody's going to sign up out at the info desk for the Joseph process to get to be number two in all of Egypt. But yet that was what God used in his life in order that he might be raised up in God's way to a place of influence. And then even when he got into influence with Pharaoh, and you understand he interpreted the dream from Pharaoh, and you recall it was seven years of plenty, seven years of lack. And even in that, he had to work the vision for seven years in order to see the miracle take place. Now, God was in all of that, but God wouldn't have been in, in any of it if he just said, oh, I don't know how God's going to get me out of this. No, he had to lay his hand to something. The Bible says that whatever you do, what? You do it as unto. So whether you're a homemaker or you're a chief executive officer, or you're a ditch digger or you're a minister or you're a teacher or you're the butcher or the baker or the candlestick maker. You never know. See, this is it. You, some of you will go to work tomorrow and you're going in your mind to your job. 
And maybe I can switch something inside of you tonight that you'll get up tomorrow. And instead of going to your job, you're going to work that a dream might be activated somehow, some way. You say, I don't even, I don't see how God could do anything in this job. Do you think Joseph could see how God could do anything? Come on now. If you're going to look with your natural eyes, you're in trouble. But if you'll get the eyes of God and understand that just, that just laying your hand to what's in front of you, God can use to activate the miracles that are inside of you. You'll never know who you run into. You'll never know who you'll meet. You'll never know how your paths will cross. You'll never know. You, you don't know. You don't know that tomorrow in your business or, or whatever you're doing. Andrea, I know you're sitting there and you do a great job trimming up those puppies and you love the puppies. And I mean, it seems like kind of a normal work. You cut puppies' hair all day long. But you never know that someone won't walk into Andrea's office as she's cutting puppies' hair right there. And that will be the moment. And you know what? If, if you were to have decided one day, four or five years ago, I just want to be a bum. I don't want to lay my hand to anything. Don't want to work. Don't want to get up. Don't want to do this. Don't, I mean, you just be a couch potato. You might have missed a moment that maybe you're 24 hours away from. Are you following me? It's not just a job. Now, I'm going to give you some misconceptions here real quick. How much time? Oh, I'm not going to have enough time. There are three major misconceptions about work. Three major misconceptions. Let me give you the first one. This is a misconception. Number one, leisure is better than work. Leisure is better than work. I don't know about you. I like a vacation every now and then. I do. Don't you like vacation? I mean, I like vacation. I like going to Orlando. I like maybe doing the Disney thing or the Universal thing or going to the lake. I like, I like a vacation. I think, I think all of us get a vacation. I think that's why God put Sabbath within the scripture. And this lesson isn't about Sabbath and rest. This, this is about work. There is yet that remains a rest for the people of God. I know that's in there. But, but, but we got to get this one down. Leisure, I think, a misconception is better than work. Think about this. I was thinking about Nehemiah the other day. And you know, when Nehemiah finally gets the burden to rebuild the wall, most people don't realize that the wall had been laying in rubble for 90 years. 90 years. Now, I don't know about you. I'm all for rest. But you understand, this is the will of God to restore the wall, and they've let it sit there for 90 years. I don't know what they thought God was going to do. You think God was going to send down an army of angels and put the brick or whatever, the stone together, and it was just going to happen? I mean, is that how you think God works in, in your life? No, that's not how God works in your life. God was waiting for somebody who would get the burden and say, let's work. Let's work. Okay? And that's why I, you've heard me say this before. We buy the books in the bookstore that give us the 10 easy steps to your dream. And, and that'll be a New York Times bestseller. You know, the favor of God to open doors. That's a bestseller. And you heard my new, next book. My next book is going to be the 10 gut-wrenching sweaty, hard steps to the will of God. Now, that, that isn't going to be even be on the radar. I'm going to have to buy a thousand books myself in order to even get the thing published. See, dominion, dominion is not throne sitting. We think dominion is when I get to sit in a throne 
and just shoot the orders. That's not dominion. God didn't set it up that way. God said six days you shall what? Work. And one day, he says, you can rest. Now, that doesn't mean six days go to a job. Come on, break out of that. We're not saying six days go to a job. Some of you go to a job, and that may not be God's destiny in your life. But truth of the matter is, is you're probably going to have to lay your hands to some other things that gives God something to work with. I think just God works with momentum. I, I mean, it's easier to turn a car that's moving than one that's just sitting in the garage. And I think it's true for our life as well. God's dream and you exercising influence requires work. Noah had to build an ark. Joseph worked all through his uh, uh, captured years to get to Egypt. Nehemiah had to work to get the wall up. So whether it's your ministry, your marriage, a career, a destiny, work is involved. And can I just say this out loud? America is losing this concept. We want everyone else to work and for us to glean from it. That's not biblical. See, that's why, but hear me, that's why I believe uh, our world is ripe for Christian influence. I mean, think about it. Think about if you go to work and you get there on time and you give your employer a good day's work and you do it excellently and, and you just fill up your surroundings and you're positive and you do this day after day, week after week, month after month, all of a sudden you're indispensable. Why? you'll probably get promoted. Think about that. Until finally you become, maybe you started out as, as a janitor, but then you begin to move up and suddenly you're a foreman or you're a manager. Who knows what God will do? And all you did was go and work. And God used that in order to give you influence. I told you last week, you all worked somewhere sometime in your life where you were the one that was working hard and one of the co-workers slid up next to you and said, Psst, quit working so hard, you're making the rest of us look bad. Because that's people's disposition. What is the minimum daily requirement that I have to do in order to still get my check, in order to still be, get an okay evaluation, that I won't get fired, what is the minimum daily requirement? And, and, and I'm just telling you, you have stepped out of supernatural happenings. The moment you lay your hands to something and give it everything you got, because the scripture said, whatever you do, you do as unto. Now, why would that be? It's because man does not promote you. God promotes you. He's the one that sets one up, puts another one down. He's the one that will exalt you in due season. That's why when you put your hands to something that's very natural, give it everything you got, not for the guy you're working for, because he might not be worthy of your best effort. He might, he might be a scoundrel, but you're not working for him, you're working for him. Are you following me? Number two, retirement is not the goal of work. Now, I, I know we've talked about this numerous times. I'm preaching till I'm at least 95 years old. I declare, I'm declaring it and declaring it and declaring it. If you all would start declaring some things, you'll be here when I do that. Are you going to be here, Andrea? Yeah, Andrea's going to be here. Because, you see, it's, it's not about retiring. 
I was thinking of my dad. You know, my dad was an air traffic controller. He learned it out of the Navy. And, uh, and my dad, I mean, my, my dad's, you know, he's, he's a Methodist, but, you know, it's not like he's brimming with spiritual revelation. He retired from the FAA at 52. My age right now. It's hard to believe. I'm 52. And he retired when he was 52, which means he was invested with a pension that he could have just gone on the rest of his life. That, I think about that. I think right now, Kevin, you could have retired if you went to the FAA. And for the rest of your life, they would have paid you, we think, unless we turn into Greece. So what did he, but what did he do? Did he, did, he just, did he just become a couch potato? No. What he did was he became a chief executive, executive officer of a business when Reagan privatized the training of air traffic controllers. He became a chief executive officer of a company that trained them. And so for another 15 years, I think it was, he did that. Now, not only did, now this is just natural. I'm not, there's nothing much spiritual that I know that was going on here. So he not only has that pension, but then he has this money and it enlarges him even more financially. And so then he retires from that. So now he gets to sit around, right? No, he bought this farm. Listen to this. That used to be an old Christmas tree farm. And what he's decided to do, and he's been working at it now for several years, is they're creating it into a private park. And so now church groups and civic groups, and they'll come out for hay rides and weddings and all kinds of things. And, and so all, he, he gets up early in the morning. He goes out to the farm. He's got a mow. He's got at least a quarter section of property there, which is, I don't know how many, 180 acres, or I don't know how much that ends up being. And so you got to mow it and tend to it. And, and all day long, I know the other day he showed me this picture. He was out cutting trees, and he had this big old slash on his forehead. Because he was out cutting some tree and some branch caught him. And I said, well, you don't get some vitamin E for that. Because that's I've done that too, you know. So, And you know what? He's, he's, he has no revelation, but has the revelation. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, what would happen if we got the revelation? That's why I'm saying, I'm not retiring. Why do you think you retire? When you're... Everybody's worked up because they're going to switch the retirement age on Social Security from 65 to maybe 67. Oh, God forbid. God forbid. But that's, see, that's the mentality. Why do we fight over that? It's because we believe that leisure is better than work and retirement is the goal of everything. And then the last one I'm going to give to you, and I've got to stop. And, and I can't even get to, the, to you. The, at this. I have, next week, we're going to do the se- seven reasons why it's good to work. I can't even get to that tonight. But the third one here I can get to, and it's just, I'm knocking some misconceptions out. I can get something for nothing. Now, there's two things that that may be true about. Number one, of course, is the gospel. And that is you can receive salvation and it costs you nothing. Isn't that good news? Jesus really did pay it all. So can you get something for nothing? Well, in a sense, yes. And even in that, you've got to give your life. So maybe that doesn't even fit there. But it is free. It is a free gift. I think you know what I'm talking about. Now, the second thing that you can get something for nothing, and it's the only other thing I know that you might be able to get something for nothing, and, and even that has a little bit of money associated with it. You know, that's the lottery. And you know what your chances are winning a lottery? 
about like being bit by a shark on your way home as you're driving tonight. And even those that win the lottery within a couple years blow it because they, they don't know how to handle even what happens when blessing comes. I can get something for nothing. God's not set it up that way. Uh, he wants you to be content. He wants you to be fulfilled. But it's based on your work. That's why, for instance, guys, lots of times we feel better after we work. I know, like, I hate, I say to myself before I go out and do the lawn and the yard work and the trimming and all those kinds of things, because, you know, what I do for a living is I'm a, I'm a pastor and... <laughs> I've often said, you know, pastoring can be a little frustrating because it's like your work's never done. It's like there's always something else that could be done. And you're working with people, and God knows they're never done. So um, you're, they're always needing work. We all need work. And uh, so, so there are times it's not like, you know, you're painting a wall and you're done. You know, that's not how it works in church unless you're painting the wall in the church because otherwise, you know, it's, it's just not how it works. But but, you know, when it's time to mow the lawn or it's time to trim the shrubbery or do yard work, I, it, sometimes, you know, I have to make myself get up and go do that. But when I'm done with that, I, I, I just sometimes I'll stand and I'll look at it and it's like, wow, that's really satisfying. That looks good. I'll even get Trace to come out and say, take a look at this. You know, it's almost, and I want her to say, good job, honey. I mean, it's like, that's what you want. And, and, and sometimes she'll do the same thing. She'll get the house cleaned up and I'll walk in and she'll say, before I even have a chance, what, how, how does the house look? And I'll say, wow, it looks great. Why is that in us? It's because there's something about completing a job or work that makes us feel fulfilled. That is why get-rich-quick schemes, sweepstakes, and all these other things will never fulfill you. All these bypass God's method of dominion. Dominion comes when you lay your hand and there's some work. And that's why R.T. Kendall said it's one of the greatest. When I, when I heard R.T. Kendall say this, I wrote it down and I say I can never for, forget this because I've, I've seen this happen in my own life and I've seen this happen in other people's lives. He said the greatest, uh, the greatest harm that can ever happen to a man or to a woman is for them to succeed before they're ready. It really is true. It really is true. The greatest harm that can happen is for someone to succeed before they're ready. Why is that? Because if it comes too easy, you get a brain cramp. I can tell you why God made me work on a janitorial crew for three or four years. You know why? So I could understand what the janitor thinks. If you're leading a great organization, you need to know how they think how they feel, what's going on in their life. You can be the big wheel and you can be a big jerk. You can have something great and you can blow it. And we've proven that as human beings. But God's wanting to raise up people. Listen, his people who when they come to those places of great influence, they didn't get there. Eat, I don't want to say this. They got there because they were favored, but they got there because they also had to work at it. God used their work to get them there. And in this hard economy, and I'll end with this, in this hard economy that we're in right now, I've looked at people and, and, and they're looking for jobs and they're wanting, their, you know, wanting a job and I, and, and I want them to have a job. 
Part of our problem, you understand, in the unemployment rate now is that people don't want jobs that aren't commensurate with what they think their education is or what their, their training is or what they're worthy of doing. You know that? So they're skipping over things because, because that's not what I'm trained to do. It, it isn't what I went to college for. Stop. Time out. Even if you can't find a job that will pay you, go volunteer somewhere. Put your hand on something. Get up in the morning. Put forth the energia. And watch what God will do. You, you will go volunteer somewhere. And, and I, I'd be, if I were a betting man, I could almost bet that you're going to be down there and you're going to cross paths with someone and they're going to see you volunteering, ask your story. You're going to tell them you don't have a job, but you're just keeping yourself busy, finding something to do. And I'll bet you God brings somebody to you. And that door will open. And maybe for the very thing you've been wanting for and longing for in this whole downturn, it comes to you. Why? Not because you were passing out your resumes, but because you put your hands on something and just started to do it. Now, I realize that doesn't sound real spiritual, and we all won't fall out and be slain in the spirit, and, and, it, and it doesn't seem like there's any gifting associated with it, but I'm telling you, it may be the most important thing you ever hear. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, something supernatural can happen. By you just getting a new perspective and laying your hands to it. Amen. Stand with me, will you?